Good morning, church. I'm glad that you can hear me, and I'm glad that you are here. So it is good to be in the house of the Lord. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Colossians chapter 4, and we will be in the last pit of that book from verses 7 through 18, and we are finishing the book of Colossians today. Read with us then, Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea, Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you read also the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, and grace be with you. May God add his richest blessing to this reading of his word. Indeed, this is God's word. This is a word which we rightfully and truly confess is inerrant and infallible. We say in the Baptist faith and message that it is a perfect treasure of divine instruction with God as its author, salvation as its end, and truth without any error of mixture for its matter. We here believe that this word is profitable as Second Timothy confers to us that it is profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we might be competent and equipped for every good work. We think that this word is powerful, that it works, that it is coming to us from God. It reveals God to us. And yet for all of that, and after saying all of that, we can sort of forget how situational the vast majority of the letters that we receive are. All of the letters of Paul are situational. They all have a reason to be written they're never just abstract theological treaties that Paul has written. Even the book of Romans, which is probably closest to that, was written with a specific purpose and a specific goal. Paul's letters are indeed written, in a sense, for us. And God, the Holy Spirit, has so overseen Paul's work to keep it, not just as a pleasant piece of history, but as revelation from God for us that is still useful today. So we need to keep these two things in place. We need to keep in place that Paul was a human author who wrote to a human audience, and yet at the same time, God the Holy Spirit oversaw what he wrote to keep it pure and intact, that it might be useful even to us. Indeed, it's difficult on a passage like we have today. This is so terribly specific. As a matter of fact, the relevance of these words would have sort of ended in a way 
10 years after they were written. Perhaps Paul was dead by then. Who knows what happened to Tychius, to Epaphras, to Aristarchus. Who knows if Mark was ever able to make it there. Who knows how relevant these words are. And it's very easy if we are expecting that the Holy Spirit has kept these for us and yet these words have no relevance for us, that these are just words that we can ignore. Yet, we have to be careful. If we aren't, we can easily come to believe that there's no relevance here for us today, that these words are simply words that are nice and are kept because they were part of a letter, but they're not actually intended and kept by the Holy Spirit for us. But indeed, they are kept for us. While small, a strong pull on the thread that undoes the idea that the Holy Spirit has kept these words for us can bring down the entire New Testament. God hasn't kept these words for us, then what other words has he not kept for us? So we believe this is indeed the word of God. We believe that it has importance for us today. So let us go to the word and try and find out what it is, at least in part, that God has kept this for us. For first, we would argue, we would say that we need to guard our reputation. We need to guard our reputation. And here we need to strike something of a balance, as often you can fall off of both sides of that log We cannot, like so much of the world, be overly concerned with what everyone else thinks of us. We cannot act like our president, publicly blasting every personal slight that might come his way. That is not the way of Christians. We cannot be so concerned with what others think of us that we try to become all things to all people. We cannot be concerned with what every single person in the world thinks of us. This will rot out the roots of conviction in you and leave us as barren trees, unable to provide shade for comfort or fruit for knowledge. If you try to be all things to all people, you can never act on conviction and you are useless in the church. However, there are pitfalls on the other side as well. We can be so confident that all we need is our relationship with Christ that what others think of us has no importance or no bearing on our lives as well. We are so built into this idea that there is a personal relationship with Christ that I need to have and have fully and strongly, which is true, but is only that we begin to lose the idea that your reputation and what others think of you does actually matter. It does matter. Bad reputation or no sometimes You just don't care what other people think of you. If this is you, you are probably prone to say things like, well, I'm sorry, when people point out that your attitude is horrible or that what you said was wrong. It's okay, you think, as long as it's true to my spirit. I don't care what other people think of me. But Paul clearly thought, especially within the church, that reputation mattered It mattered a lot what other people thought of other people. Here he writes to the Colossians about many people, numerous people, upholding them not only so the Colossians will welcome them, such as Mark in verse 10, but also so that their reputation will be upheld by the Colossians. Paul wants to extend the good reputation of others whom the Colossians might never even see. So he says, listen, Mark is going to come to you. And if he does, you are to welcome him. But there's no indication that anyone else is going to be coming to them. I mean, Tychius will and and perhaps Onesimus. But others, they might never meet. They've never met Paul. 
And yet he is very clearly trying to uphold their reputation and talk about the good people that they are. Luke is beloved by Paul. Epaphras struggles for the Colossians, works hard for them. Mark, Aristarchus, and Justice are called out as comforts for him. Luke, as we said, is beloved to both Paul and to others. In other words, Paul cared what the Colossians thought about these people, whom they might never meet. Their reputation mattered. Last week we talked about how attitudes can affect the gospel. That a gospel that is beautiful and good and glorious can be spoiled by people who are none of those things. That arrogance, hatred, annoyance, anger, those things can spoil the beauty of the gospel. But it's not just in the presentation of the gospel. It is in your being called the body of Christ. Your reputations can spoil that. The early church worked very hard on the reputation. There was rumors around Greco-Roman cultures wherever the church would spread because it was such an unknown thing for people to call themselves brothers and sisters. They had never heard so many people call themselves brothers and sisters. That rumors would spring up that there was just a big cult of incestuous people. Well, Christians rightly shrugged their shoulders at this and said, well, that's stupid. But they also turned around and said, and you're wrong, we're not. We are bonded by the blood of Christ. That's what makes us brothers and sisters in the Lord. There were rumors that were spread in the first century that the early church was cannibalistic because they took the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And I said, no, you don't understand. It's a metaphor, although Catholics kind of blew that up. It's a metaphor, right? They didn't just say, you're wrong, and then go on their merry way, but they tried to defend themselves. No, you can't care what everyone thinks, but you do need to protect your reputation for the glory of Christ and for the good of others. Guard your reputation. What do people think of you when they think of you? In a much less important way, we might ask who people say you are. When you ask people around who you are, what would come to their minds? What do you think? Be introspective in things like that. Ask yourself what other people might say of you. Those negative things that flood your brain, certainly there are. Those things that might even now sting your conscience are these things that you need to work on to gain a better reputation among people. Let your reputation be one of comfort, service, love, and godliness to the glory of Christ our Lord. Secondly, and attached to this, we need to be people who give our condemnation, not condemnation, commendation to people, commendation to others. Listen, if we are to uphold our own reputations, if we are to be people of good reputation, then we also also ought to be people who give commendations to people who deserve it. We, together, are found in very polite society. We know that there is a right way to act in our world, that when a waiter brings you food, it is right and good to tell him thank you. When your wife cooks you a delicious meal, it is right and good to say thank you for serving me in that way. So many times we talk about the things that people do for us and we say it is important, and I have pounded this the past couple of weeks and throughout the book of Colossians, it is important to give thanks to people. But commendation is not just giving thanks to people. Because when we give thanks to people, we give thanks to them for the things that they do. But commendation is more than that. We are not just to thank people for what they do, but we are to commend them for who they are. Let 
when a friend goes out of their way to care for you, to serve you, to help you, don't just thank them for the act. Commend them for being a servant. Commend them for being a person who loves and cares. You see, there's a great difference between telling someone that you are thankful that they did this or that for you. Thank you for making me dinner. Thank you for helping the children at the church. Thank you for taking that burden off of me. These things are much different than saying that you are a really good cook and you serve me so well in that. And saying you are a true servant of the church, those people who work back in the nursery and give their time and their efforts to that. To say you are a comfort to me, friend. You didn't just do something nice. You yourself are an embodiment of that comfort. Notice that Paul, as we read through this, doesn't just give thanks for the things that people do. He is praising who they are. He's not just saying, thank you for your service. He's saying, you are a good and true servant. Tychius does not just serve Paul and the Lord. He is a faithful servant and a beloved brother. Aristarchus, Justice, and Mark are all comforts to Paul. They themselves are comforts. They are not just actions. They are not just people who do things but they are people who are things. And so Paul commends them as such. Listen, this is not just a small thing. You ought to still give thanks to people when they do good things for you. But I think that it's more important than that. Even just a minute ago when I asked you to think of what other people think of you, the vast majority of you, given that we are prone in the church to talk about humility, to say that you ought not think better of yourselves than other people, to say that pride comes before a fall, would not hopefully have run to all the brilliant things that you think you are, right? Instead, you probably thought through a number of bad characteristics that you're not even sure leak out into the wider public, but you know are true of yourself, Perhaps you do need to work on those areas. But you need to think positive things as well. Telling people that you're thankful for the things that they do are great in the moment. Telling people that you commend them for being that kind of person sticks with them. If we care about our reputations, we need to give both the good and the bad before us. We should not care about everyone's opinions, but those opinions we do care about need to be focused not just on what we can improve on, but also on encouraging others in their walks where they're already doing well. Tell people that they are doing good things, not just in their actions, but in who they are. You are a good servant of the church. You are a patient person. You are a comfort to me. Such things spur us to greater deeds of service and love, comfort us in times of trial and temptation when we are prone to think that God has not equipped us for any work or service within the church. And they demonstrate that God's work in us and in our lives is not wasted. Commend one another. Thirdly, let us grow through mediation. Let us grow through mediation. There are Probably, simplistically, two types of church growth. And many churches tend to be really good at one and not great at the other. There are those churches who are numerically good, and they can grow quickly. 
They focus on evangelistic outreach. They focus on the importance of reaching lost communities, of providing gospel outreach opportunities to members and training their members for those gospel encounters. They are focused on presenting the gospel to as wide of an audience as they can. They work in their people for that. They train their people for that. And they send their people for that. This is well and good. And we should applaud churches who do that. However, many of these types of churches also fail to adequately grow the members that they actually have. They're able to build impressive structures and budgets from the sheer numbers that they pull in, but their people are dying and starving from a lack of the word and the water. They shrivel on the vine because they're unable to feed adequately on Jesus Christ himself. And their roots wither underneath them because they have no depth and persecution and trials come. They are, as the saying goes, a mile wide and an inch deep. Other churches, perhaps, are an inch wide and a mile deep. They focus on growing their membership deeper in the Lord. They focus on the word and good theology. Their roots are deep, and they are able to face trials and tribulations with joy in their heart. Many of you are like this. You've faced trials and tribulations. You've faced grief in your life, and you can do it in solid faith because this church has built you deep, deep down into the good soil. They are robust, these sorts of churches, doctrinally. They can spot a heresy coming from a mile away. But oftentimes when that heresy lands in their front door, they don't know how to present the gospel to the person. Their neighborhoods are oftentimes left untouched by their presence. And people are oftentimes not being reached with the gospel. Both of these need to be true of us. We cannot afford to be a mile wide and an inch deep, nor can we afford as a church to be an inch wide and a mile deep. We need to be people who are deepening their love of Christ and then deepening that love by spreading it out to others. That is the goal of a Christian church. Not one or the other, but both. So the question becomes, how do we become a church that does both? How do we become a church that is not just growing deeper into the word theologically, but is growing out in numbers by doing evangelism, by calling those who are in the highways and in the hedges to come and feast at the Lord's Supper, to come to the banquet of the word. How do we become those types of people? Now, there's a host of things we can do. We can start filling in the gaps. We can say, well, we'll do evangelistic training. We'll have community outreach. But there's something that is much more simple and much more provoking that we can do, and that is we can pray. Listen. Listen to what Paul says about Epaphras. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, servant of Christ Jesus, in verse 12, he greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Now, the struggle that Epaphras would have had would not have been for every single hurt and bump that came along to the Colossians. He he couldn't have heard news of them. He didn't have Facebook. He didn't have Skype. He didn't have a phone. There was no way for that communication to reach him. What he was doing was not simply responding to prayer requests. Listen, we are great. You need to respond to prayer requests. When people come to you and say, we're sick, we're hurting, we're we're." you know, in need of, of provision. We are to pray that God will work in those ways. But I'm telling you, I think in my life and in your life, that takes up a huge, huge portion of our prayer. We pray solely in response to crises. 
and we should, but not alone. Epaphras is not here praying in response to a crisis at Colossae. Instead, he is preemptively praying that God would work in those people so that they might be fully mature and able to stand in all of the wisdom that God has to give them. He mediated for the Colossians. He intervened for them before God. Not simply a prayer of response to the difficulties that they face, but a prayer that God would so work in them that when those difficulties came, he wouldn't have to pray for them about those difficulties because they would already be robust enough to deal with them. He struggled in his prayers. He worked fervently to gain the goal that he prayed for. How often, church, do you pray this way for one another? How often do you pray for other people in this church, not when you hear that they're sick, not when you hear that they're struggling, not when you hear that they've been a little bit depressed lately, not when you know they're facing economic troubles, but simply thought, I should pray to strengthen my brother or my sister in the Lord. Perhaps the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, where it says, What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Maybe the grief that we feel there is not just because we ourselves are not praying for ourselves, but also because we are not praying for others before they even get to the point of grief. Perhaps they're bearing a larger burden because we have not adequately mediated for them before God, our Father, and prayed that he would strengthen them because everyone in here, every single person is going to face loss and trouble and difficulty. You don't have to wait. You know it's coming. I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, and I'm going to tell you, it's coming. You are going to suffer, and the people around you are going to suffer. Pray for them now. Pray for them now so that God can continually stir up their hearts and work in them, so that when those trials come, they will be ready for them. Stir them up in their hearts for evangelism, so that when chances are placed before them, so when doors are open for them, they will be more brave to walk through them, more bold in their proclamation of their faith. Pray for the church that we might be both of those things, growing deeper into the word and into Jesus Christ and also so filled with love that it overflows for those who are surrounding us, that we might be willing to give of our time not only to learn from the word of God, but to demonstrate our love for people in the wider communities that we serve in, in Bay City, in Midland, Saginaw, Michigan, all the way out to the ends of the earth. Frankly, part of this is just doing the work. Part of my excitement over us getting a new directory, which we've talked about, it seems a silly little thing, a new directory. We get a new directory, it's simply a pragmatic thing, right? So that when you need to call somebody, you can look up their name, you can say, ah, there's their picture, that is the person I'm thinking of, I haven't talked to her in a while, but she still looks the same, and now I can call her because I've got her number, I know where she lives, and I can write her an email, right? It's a very pragmatic thing. Listen, I'm telling you, use, once that new directory comes out, use it to pray for the people in that directory, Take a page a day and pray for them. Pray that God would strengthen them. Pray that God would keep them from temptation. Pray that when tempted, God would so strengthen them to lead them through that temptation, unscathed, to be holy and blameless before him. 
be Epaphras. Struggle for one another in prayer. Not just in response, but preemptively. Finally, let us glory in unification. We all know that there are a number of Christian churches out there who, as they claim to be Christian, have lost all semblance of any Christianity. They've lost their theological foothold. They've stumbled into heresy upon heresy that has cut them off from Christ. Or, trying to maintain a sense of orthodoxy, they have so lost themselves in the world, they have turned the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into nothing more than licentiousness. And grace becomes simply a tool for them to live however they want in the world. They might call themselves Christians, but there is little, little to nothing that remains in them that would actually identify them as such. Listen, we know that those churches exist. It's a difficulty. And it's easy to focus on them because they're, they're really easy to identify. We dislike that because they... They drag the name of our Lord through the mud. They make him into somebody who promotes sin instead of somebody who promotes a holy life. They are hypocrites, and they dishonor God in that. And we can easily compare them to ourselves, and we can take comfort in our statements of faith. We can take comfort that we rest on the word of God. We can take comfort that we have the Spirit working through us and we know that He works through us. And we can thank God that we are not like those who pervert the Word of God for their own desires. But we can so do that that we end up cutting ourselves off from the rest of the world where the gospel is being proclaimed by churches simply because they're different than us. We can so focus on how we are different from all of those failing churches. Whether they're growing large or not, they're failing churches. We can focus so much on how we are so different than them. We can begin to think that we are a special little entity of God where his mercy and his grace have been upon us, especially amongst the peoples of the world. That we have it figured out and everybody else is lost and slowly that builds up over time and you can never think that way. You are not special, Crossway. You are special to the Lord, yes, but in the same way that millions and millions and millions and billions, hopefully, of people around the world are special to God. He has not chosen this church out from all of the other churches in the world. We need to be glad, glad, that we have brother and sister churches all over the place. In Louisiana, we have brother and sister churches. In Georgia, we've got them. In Bay City, we've got them. In Sri Lanka, there are some. In Africa and South America, they all look, they speak, they talk different. Their theology is different, but there are churches there that hold tightly onto the gospel. We should be grateful for that. This is not a call to lose our theological firmness We're not to be wishy-washy in our convictions simply because others exist that think differently than us. We don't have to be glad that the gospel is poured forward from churches that don't agree with us in such a way that we lose all ties to our Baptist identity. 
We can be grateful for Presbyterians and look at them and say, you guys are really wrong when it comes to baptism. We can be grateful for Methodists who actually proclaim the word of God while at the same time saying, the way you guys handle polity is way off. We can be firm in our convictions and be glad that God is still working and holding the gospel even amongst churches that look vastly different than ours. Notice what Paul does here. Paul says, when this letter is read among you, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and also read the letter from them. Greet them for me. Paul would write the same to the Romans and he'd write the same to the Corinthians. And all of these churches, although we kind of have this monolithic view of them, all of them would have been different. They would have had different makeups. They would have had different struggles. I mean, the Corinthians might have struggled with certain things that the Galatians would have just said, I don't understand you guys. How can you even permit that in your midst? The Corinthians would look at the Romans and say, you guys don't care nearly enough about gifts and how God has equipped each and every one of us. And the Romans might look at them and say, you guys don't care enough about good, solid, strong salvation theology. But all of these were served by Paul. All of them existed for the glory of God and all of them, through the grace of God, held tightly to the gospel. We should glory in that. We should glory that Christ has not worked only through us. This has to be a comfort to us as well. We are not the lone shining hope of all the world. We are not it. Christ Jesus is it. And he works in a number of different ways. It's a good reminder that we are not alone in our fight for the kingdom. We're not. It should both humble and encourage us. It should encourage us because we're not alone. We have other churches that are fighting alongside of us in different ways, in, in ways that we would not agree with, but in they're fighting for us. They're fighting for the gospel. They're fighting for holiness. They're fighting for the same things that we fight for. It should humble us because we are not the embodiment of the church universal. We are simply an outpost of it, doing the best we can with the services, with the gifts, and the giftings that Christ has given to us. That is it. So let our glory not just be in what Christ is doing here, but whether what Christ is doing in the churches of Bay City, in the churches of Midland and Saginaw, in the Tri-City area, in the churches of Michigan, in the churches of North America, and indeed all across the world. Let us glory in the work that Christ is doing all over the globe. Let us glory in a gospel that unites every tribe, tongue, people, and nation before the throne of God above. That gospel is ours, but it is not exclusively ours. Let us hold on to it with all that we have. Let us be transformed by its power, remade in Christ's image, by the new creation found in his resurrection from the dead, let us be united with him in one baptism, finding in him all that we need in both this world and in the next. Let us walk in Christ in newness of life, firm in our conviction and gracious in our practice. Let our voices sing out love for him in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And let everything we, done, we do be done in his name to the glory of God the Father. So as we finish this study in Colossians, I echo Paul's prayer from the beginning 
of this book. And I pray with Paul, as he did for the Colossians, and undoubtedly he does for us, I pray this for us as well as we finish this study. That Crossway Christian Church might be filled with all the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we collectively might walk in a manner that is suitable to the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Thanks be to our God. Let us pray. Gracious Father, we ask that you continue to work through us, through your Spirit. Where we are prideful, we ask you to humble us. Where we need comfort, bear us up. Where we need conviction, strengthen feeble knees. Where we need grace, let the blood of Jesus cover us. Where we are wrong, let us repent. Where we are right, let us give glory to you. When we serve, Father, let us do it with exuberance. When we are served, let us accept that with thankfulness. In all ways, Father, make us more in the image of Jesus Christ our Lord, whose death has pardoned us, and whose resurrection has provided for us a new creation. Let your Spirit work in us, Father, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ our Lord, for your own glory. Amen.